friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as always, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, I don't know why, but I decided today was gonna be the reason the day that I put a plate full of like leftover pizza in front of me while I record, and that just <laughs> seems like a bad idea. You know, I noticed that, and I mean I, I historically eating with a microphone in front of you has not been a, a key for long-term success, but we're off on guard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I think I'm going to put it under the table. Okay. I, just, I wasn't thinking. I was just like, I'm slightly hungry. I'll munch on stuff while I wait for Andy to tell me he's ready to go. And I got more stuff than I should have. So don't... <laughs> Don't worry, listeners. I will not force you to like listen to me chewing or anything, but I am realizing now that we're 34 episodes in and I'm still figuring out like what proper etiquette is during all of this. You know, I mean, we, we grow a little every day and that's all anyone can ask for. <laughs> I don't know. Are you one of those people who, like, the sound of people chewing bothers you? Not really. Not at all. I, I will say I don't understand ASMR. I, it, it, there is no uh, positive or negative stance for me in regards to that. I, so my theory, ASMR doesn't work for me. Like, I've checked it out and I've just kind of been like, eh, it's fine. Um, my theory. My theory behind it is it's really, really, like, affecting for people who are not used to, who are used to a lot of cacophonous noise all of the time. Mm. So, like, if you live in a city or if you live uh, in the kind of place where there's constantly just lots of background noise, there's always a low hum of just various sounds coming through asmr like if you put on the headphones and you sit there and listen to it it is pumping in like white noise and then light interruptions in the white noise so it gives this very strange experience for people who otherwise don't ever experience silence that's my theory I say that full bore. I have admitted on this podcast before, like, I don't like silence. Silence freaks me out. When the house is quiet, I need to put on music oh, or I need sure. to put in headphones. When when Stephanie and I go out hiking in the mountains, I'm always like, gonna, gonna sing little songs, gonna beatbox to myself, gonna drum on my chest because the sound of the quiet sounds <laughs> like death. I but. understand your plight terribly, my man. Um... There, there are times when Mariah just wants nothing but silence in the car. Doesn't want to carry a conversation and does not want to listen to anything. And those moments, like, instantly just set my brain into that cabin fever, white noise, staticky, bad touch mode. <laughs> mm. Have you ever been in a fight with someone in a car and they're like, I don't want to talk about it? And then, so then you just kind of go, all right, well then I'm going to put on the radio or I'm going to, or I'm going to like sing songs to myself or you just, 
in your own little world and it's really frustrating for people? Uh, I'm pretty sure I've done that unintentionally plenty of times. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. That was something I think, I think that happened with uh, one of my parents growing up. Like they'd be very like, we'd have an argument or a disagreement and they'd want to sit in silence. And I'd just be like, okay, you want to be silent? Turning on the radio, singing to the songs. I'm all, I'm all up in my head about this. <laughs> and it's really frustrating because they'll be like, they'll turn off the radio and just sit in silence. And I can straight up just be like, oh, so not only do you not want to talk about this, but you want to be miserable in the quiet. I see how it is. That's a great little power play move to be like, okay, you be quiet. No one says I have to. <laughs> yeah. No, I just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I try and be willing to have conversations when conversations need to happen. And if people don't want to have conversations, I'm like, cool, I'm not going to be miserable. I'm going to be happy and listen to ridiculous songs. Nice. Because that's who I am as a human. I guess it, it's a, it is kind of like weaponizing your own joy, which yeah. sounds like something I would do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't have you any other way, though, buddy. Oh, Uh, you're such a sweet boy. Thank you. Before we get into the episode proper, um, this isn't isn't related to our love or our hate, but it's topical at time of recording, and I just felt like sharing it. Um, Way back when, you know, we talked about esports, and uh, very recently, in the past week, there has been a esports controversy, the the first of its kind that I've ever seen. And people may have been aware. Hopefully, this has been resolved, but probably not by the time of listening. So, you know, China is a global superpower, and Hong Kong is a hotbed of civil unrest at the moment. And this past week for a Hearthstone tournament, which is basically World of Warcraft, it was if it was an online card game, one of the winners of the tournament, a guy named Chung Ying Wai, who goes by Blitz Chung on uh, gaming handles, um, you know, he, he won the tournament and then he took an opportunity to speak out and you know, talk about all of the horrible things that the Chinese government is doing in Hong Kong right now and the civil unrest and the riots. And uh, Blizzard, the company putting on the tournament and the people who created Hearthstone, uh, took this as an opportunity to ban him and set out a press release saying that video games are, are not a place to make your political stances known. So... Esports, everybody, just as corrupt and uh, greedy as regular sports. Uh, uh, you know, I saw a take online. I heard about this story. That's this is how big it was. Um, and I heard a story where like Blizzard was like Blizzard did the banning, obviously because they wanted to appease China because China is a huge market for them, and. In response to this action, so many people have actively, um, I guess, either been spamming their message boards, um, using their streams to publicly endorse support for this person who got banned. So much so that Blizzard is now actively worried that the Chinese government is just going to completely ban all of their products 
to avoid just any opportunity for anyone voicing support on this. So, realistically, had Blizzard left it alone, the story probably would have gone away pretty quickly without much fanfare, but because they acted like shitholes, yeah. they might actually lose the entire market anyway. Yeah, they might lose the Chinese market. They they might lose a whole heck of a lot more than that. You know, Blizzard, somebody in Blizzard high up keeps doubling down and keeps making uh, a pro-Chinese, pro-standing government in Hong Kong stance known. And as a result, people are protesting within the company. Like there have been um, staged walkouts in Blizzard HQ. There's like this this plaque somewhere in the main lobby that talks about, you know, integrity and, you know, being a, a place for all gamers and employees are taping that like they're, they're taping paper over that in protest. And yeah, this is becoming uh, a, a whole massive controversial international incident shitstorm on its own. And that was not something I think either of us predicted when we talked about esports way back when in the opening days of the podcast. So yeah, I, that was the episode. Uh, I don't remember the question, but it was where we talked about Rob Paulson and we titled the, your segment virtual sports sports. Yes. <laughs> because we are handfuls. But I love it. I love us. I, I that title gives me a chuckle anytime I think about it. Oh <laughs> uh, no, I, I appreciate you highlighting the story. Who I, I really don't know. With the delay that we have on these recordings, I never quite know right. how our topical discussions will come through, but if nothing else, pretty sure the Hong Kong situation won't be rectified by that point. And pretty sure that it's worth highlighting here that how should I put this? American-based multinational corporations aren't actually loyal to either the United States or the values that the United States purports to support. They're in line with whoever gives them money. So yeah. keep that in mind at all times, always. Yeah, the like I the even the optimist in me isn't sitting here thinking that Hong Kong will be resolved by the time people are actually listening to this. So it's not a hate for this week, but uh, maybe look for it coming up because, <laughs> you know, it's not just Blizzard. It's the NBA and it's Marvel and it's a, a whole host of entities. But, you know, felt topical to uh, talk about the esports issues before we got into what was our planned segments for today. Yeah, well, it's a big enough seg. It's a big enough moment in video games that I know about it, Andy. Right. Yeah, that's saying something. Right. Like <laughs> I am. I am in the tiniest microcosm of this. Uh, so yeah, I know. I appreciate you bringing it up. With that in, with that leaving a you know sallow taste in our mouths, uh, do we want to get into the episode? Yeah, let's talk about something lovely that we can uh, we can think about instead. It is lovely. Okay, um, folks, this is love hate relationship. Uh, twice a month, we come at you uh, with one topic we love, one topic we hate, and one uh, question, one relationship based question that we hope our uh, tremendously unqualified advice will offer a little light to. So. Andy, I think I'm starting this time. I think you are, man. 
Yeah, well, that's rhetorical. I sent you notes. Um, that's why I so, think you are. <laughs> fair enough. The, uh, the love I'm bringing to the table this time is, uh, Andrew, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, that will be 1984's Footloose. Uh, as always, I like to begin with a nice question, and I'm going to keep this nice and open-ended because I know that you've—I know that you're familiar with this property. I'm pretty sure you've seen the movie. I know you've had experience with the stage show. Um, so, dear boy, what does my mentioning Footloose? When I sent you notes <laughs> about Footloose, what did it bring to mind to you? What emotions? What feelings? What thoughts? You know, it's funny because I knew Footloose was your favorite movie, but I don't know if we've ever talked about it. I knew it was your favorite movie because of a discussion I had with uh, your wife. And it's it's just charming and funny to me because, like, knowing you, I never would peg Footloose to be one of your favorite movies. Not that there's anything really wrong with Footloose, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's just not the thing I would necessarily go, oh yeah, that's Alex's favorite movie. Now, Halloween, absolutely. Footloose, not so much. But it does make me think of sophomore year in high school, which um, was when we put on Footloose. It was my sophomore year, your senior year. It was um, an experience for sure where I, I learned I could not do a country accent to save my life. Who did you play in that show? I was, I, so I was the principal of whatever the high school was. I mean, you know, it was a fairly mm-hmm. minor part, nothing wrong with that. Um, but I had just enough speaking lines and, you know, I equated, okay, so we're out in the Midwest. I, I got to put on some sort of, country dialect and talk to Evan Ramirez about why he isn't allowed to dance at this here school. And that thing I just did was about as good as my country accent was 10 years ago. So, and if you're dissatisfied for any reason, I will refund your money in the form of acorns. I always did kind of think like no disrespect, but you, your acting chops, you would have made a fantastic Willard. Thank you. You would have. I really do believe. That. Don't get me wrong. I think it was Josh who was it Willard. It was Josh McDonald in his his senior highlight role. Yeah. Well, I mean, the boy, the boy was stupendous all the time. He was far too talented at everything he ever did. But um, and he was a great Willard. But I really do think, like you, between your physicality and your you're dancing and yeah i certainly friggin dance like willard (laughs) (laughs) oh i love that i love that your first thoughts are why is this one of alex's favorite movies and and it has it's funny i told i i told stephanie yesterday because we rewatched this last night i was i I turned to her and i just kind of went Ever since I first saw this movie, like, it has not left my top ten favorite movies of all time. Like, it's been in the top ten, it's been in the top five, it's been in the top three, and it has been number one, just depending on my mood. Like, my typically I say my top three favorite movies tend to be um, A New Hope, hmm. Halloween, and Footloose. 
all in one order or another. And I think it's fair to say one of those is not like the others. <laughs> in fairness, um, I feel like none of them are quite like the others. True. I feel New like... Hope was the 70s, so I can't... When, when did Halloween come out? Uh, 1974? Okay. I believe. So that's in the ballpark of uh, Star Wars New Hope. But so a new hope was 77 Halloween was 78 and then footloose was 84. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, I and admittedly other movies have inched up there before. Like, again, my my top movies, it's always been a rotating cast. Sure. But footloose has consistently been in that top 10 for me ever since I saw it at maybe like. 12 13 and and don't get me wrong i i think it's delightful that it's one of your favorite movies it is it is not a bad movie by any measure and you know i'm i'm happy to talk with you about it today okay sweet so getting into it um this movie as i said came out in 1984 written by dean pritchford or pitchford rather uh, and directed by Herbert Ross. Uh, it is a musical drama. If you're not familiar with Footloose, y'all, it's a musical drama from 1984 starring Kevin Bacon, Laurie Singer, John Lithgow, Diane Weist, Christopher Penn, and a very young Sarah Jessica Parker. Uh, elevator pitch is basically that Kevin Bacon plays Ren McCormick, a, this is going to be the most 80s sounding bullshit ever, um, <laughs> plays Ren McCormick. A hip Chicago teenager who moves to Beaumont, Utah with his single mother so that they can live with his aunt and uncle and get back on their feet. He culture clashes with the townspeople, befriending some of them, catching the ire of others, including John Lithgow's Reverend Shaw Moore, who's used his influence in the town to ban dancing and rock music. Wren makes it his mission to try and get the law struck down and have a senior prom for the high school. Along the way... He teaches Chris Penn's Willard to dance, gets in a game of chicken with tractors, fights a domestic abuser, dances it out in a warehouse, and Reverend Moore realizes, spoilers, that his congregation are a bunch of book-burning monsters <laughs> and eventually acquiesces. And on that description, it sounds like a very kind of dumb movie, right? Well, like, I, I think that's a little, un, I mean, it doesn't sound dumb. It, it just, it does sound 80s as all hell. It sounds like it belongs in the same, like, if you, if you elevator pitch, like, Karate Kid, it's, it's, um, angry young dude gets bullied and takes lessons from wise old Asian man in karate and so that he can win the karate tournament and show up his bullies. Or whatever that movie was where they had to dance to save the community center. Yeah. Like, it is that level of just, like, memeable 80s cheese. And having rewatched it for maybe the, like, 50th time yesterday, it is still 80s cheese as hell. Oh, sure. Well, I think, like... Like, Guy moves from the city to somewhere that is not the city 
and is an outcast, but he's got a skill. He's got a thing he's passionate about. And, you know, that becomes like the thing that makes him the hero of the movie. That is a subgenre of its own. I can think of like several Disney movies that just kind of did the same thing. Only, you know, this kid moved from California to Cincinnati, but he's good at hockey. This guy, uh, this guy moved from Hawaii to Colorado, but he, uh, you know, he used to be able to surf and now he's an awesome snowboarder. Johnny tsunami kids. Like, Oh God, Johnny fucking tsunami. I love Johnny tsunami. Friday on magical world of Disney. Hold on to your remotes because Disney's about to go Richter. How do you go Richter? Uh, And, and I, I figure footloose couldn't have been the thing to, start that as like a stereotypical movie trope but if i'm wrong and it did that doesn't surprise me at all i don't think it started it um in fairness i can't think of many movies that that like precede it in the same way but if you're willing to open it up to like the story of the you know hip urban individual moving having to move to the small town and struggling with the small town i mean i feel like that's a classic story yeah. that's i feel like if you you know you dig into your uh, why am i blanking on the name um power of myth guy uh hero's journey robert something oh you know i, I packed that book away this is this is the last episode we're doing in my current apartment so i'm I'm not surrounded by boxes, but Joseph Campbell, Joseph Campbell. So yeah, Robert. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, for some reason, every time I think of Joseph Campbell, Campbell, I always want to talk about, I always want to call him Robert McCameron, who is a novelist who certainly writes Joseph Campbell-y stories, but is not in fact, Joseph Campbell. Um, Joseph Campbell was on the set for like, for, for the first Star Wars movie. Like that's how much George Lucas wanted to do the hero's journey thing. That's besides the point. Um, but I feel like that particular... What was I getting at? Why did I mention Joseph Campbell? Well, because talking about plot structure and and tropes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Joseph Campbell would talk about, you know, concepts of, like, man versus man, man versus nature, man versus himself, man versus society. And, like, I feel like this is a classic version of, like, the man versus society thing, where he has this clash and he needs to try and show these, like, these kind of backwards folks kind of all the ways that they're wrong. Although, like, surprisingly, the movie leaves a lot of room for, like, the difference. And he's very, it's very much a... Ren is doing this because this one particular thing about the town is terrible. The fact that, like, because... So the whole reason all these laws are in place was because is ostensibly because uh, a bunch of teenagers, including Reverend Shaw Moore's son, um, backslash Ariel, um, the love interest character, her brother, uh, died in a car crash right. because they drove out of town, went like clubbing and partying, were really drunk and high, and were driving back, and they had a car crash on a bridge. And the reverend, rather than deal with his feelings of grief, decided that he was responsible for the spiritual salvation of the entire town and just kind of says, okay, it's the drugs and it's the liquor and it's the dancing and it's the rock music. That's it. That's why this happened. That's why... 
and that's why I need to get all these things banned to protect to protect everybody, to protect the spiritual well-being of my community, which he says a couple of times. And for Ren, he's very much like, your grief is valid. All of your griefs are valid. He says in his speech, like the big dramatic 80s speech to the town council towards the end, he's like, there was a time for this law, but it's not anymore. Like that time is gone. He's not trying to change the town. Willard calls him out a couple times because he's like, I don't understand this town. I don't get why this town's so backwards. And he's like, listen, we're not backwards hicks. We've got TV. We've seen Leave it to Beaver. We're not as dumb as you think we are. We just, it's just a different kind of place. It's just a different kind of community that values different things. You need to open your mind about this. Willard's supposed to be the dumb character. And he completely, and he calls it, and he calls Red on this stuff. The movie's way more subtle than anyone gives it credit for. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because you know you were you, you were talking about how you were talking about how Reverend Moore you know has something traumatic happen and then prescribes why it happened and you know that is a very especially in the 80s and 90s sort of fundamentalist Christian thing to do, you know, violent video games cause school shootings. So let's get rid of the violent video games. And it's, it's almost satirical. It's not funny. And it like, it's not overtly funny enough to be satire, I think, but it's, you know, it, it, at the very least it, it makes sense why a character might do this, but you know, they turn it on its head where instead of, anything necessarily violent or even just banning drugs and alcohol. It's, you know, the theme of the movie is no dancing and that's where all the conflict comes in. And, and something the movie does that's very interesting is it never, like it never criticizes. I, I I just said that, you know, if there's a defense for the small town as just being different, it, this thing, even though it's a reverend who's, you know, causing all these, all this strife, there's never an indictment of Christianity or religion. It's very much a an indictment of this one man with all of his influence. And it shows. It goes to great lengths to show. He is real he is a great like piece of this community. Yeah. He goes he goes and he has he has supper with or he has lunches with like the um with like a lot of the old retired women in that in the town and he goes and speaks to people at the libraries and he's very involved in the community and he tries and he volunteers and he's tries to be this helpful person he's a good minister in a lot of ways but in this one kind of thing he's used the influence that he has to push this one notion and the thing that makes him change his mind it's He's confronted by Ariel, who's like, here's the ways that you are wrong. Here's how, like, you don't, you haven't been dealing with your grief. I miss my brother too, but you, you never dealt with me. You decided to take it upon yourself to save the whole town. And that was how you dealt with this. And that was wrong. His wife calls him on it. She says that, like, you are a great minister, but you're really, really bad at these kind of smaller things. Um, Ren, he talks to Ren even, um, 
he talks to multiple people who kind of call him on this, and the whole time he's just like, I can't bend on this. This is really important. I can't let something like this happen. The thing that changes him is when he realizes that his congregation have taken his lessons, which he thinks are really important about like rock music and and dancing and drugs, and they're burning books in the library. They are going through the library and they're like, We're just doing what you taught us. Right. You know, we have a perfect right to decide what our children read. Or they 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 foreshadow it because they they decide to fire like the the community like the community people accepting Reverend Moore decide that there's this one teacher who at the high school who's teaching books like Slaughterhouse Five and they're just like this is a terrible book this is a book that should be burned this guy should be fired and they fire they get him fired without Reverend Moore and he's like. What, I, I didn't think there were there was any grounds for you to do this. This is this was the wrong thing to do. Then when he sees his people burning books to protect morality, he realizes, oh no, everything I've taught has gone. It's gone too far. It's gone to a place I never intended. I I drew my line here, but everyone else is taking the lessons and applying it way out here. And he says, if we don't learn to trust our children. At the end, he does this sermon where he basically acquiesces, and he's like, if we don't learn to trust our children, how will they ever become trustworthy? I need to learn to let you go to your own decisions. It's so subtle. It doesn't indict religion. It doesn't even indict, like... He doesn't even say that he's completely changed his mind personally. He says to Andy at the end, the guy who owns the place where they're eventually doing the dance, he says... He tells him, you did a good thing here, Reverend, and he says, I'm still not convinced it was the right thing. Like, he's not convinced of this, but he evolves when he sees where it goes. But it's all about him and him changing. And it's not that the town is bad or the religion is bad or any of this is really that bad. It's just, here's one thing where one person has done the wrong thing and here's how they're rectifying it. It's so small and so beautiful, and I love it so fucking much. And it is great, you know. And it's it's interesting how like I completely agree with you. You know, Reverend Shaw Moore. It is such a character arc for him, and it's such a wonderful character arc because you know he goes from being the villain ostensibly to just understanding that he needs to break down his own personal traumas and biases. You know, and a lot of that is helped by the amazing performance by John Lithgow in the movie. Like, I I don't think it lands as strongly if you don't have such a wonderful actor playing him. The the cast is... Dennis Quaid. Huh? Dennis Quaid. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Is he he Sean the remake? Yeah. Okay, I figured as much. The remake... The remake isn't bad. I, I don't want to pretend the remake is bad. It's just not particularly good. Right. I, it's just like, it's there. I wholly ignore the remake for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's competent. It's fine. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, you were, you were singing fine. the praises of John Lithgow, well, and he deserves praises. Absolutely. No, I was just going to transition, and you know, the cast is is actually pretty fantastic, I think. You know, John Lithgow just is a masterful actor in his own right, no matter what he's in, including third rock from the sun. Um, oh, I, I love that show. I forgot Chris Penn was the original Willard and, and Chris <laughs> Penn is 
one of my like holy favorite underrated actors, God rest his soul. You know, he's, he's in one of my favorite movies, Reservoir Dogs, and just, he deserves all the praise in the world. Um, you know, Diane Weist, Sarah Jessica Parker in like, I've come to understand between Footloose and, um, Hocus Pocus, like, like young Jessica Parker. Oh, okay. I get it. I understand how she like turned this into being the name that she was and getting sex in the city and all that. Um, and you know, that's not even talking about Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I would be remiss. Um, no, actually, you know what? I'm not done with the cast. Uh, no, seriously, Kevin, like, it is so subtle. John Lithgow in particular has so many subtleties throughout this. He's so, that's the thing. You, you say, you said at the beginning of that, that he's ostensibly the villain. And the thing is, he's not a villain at all. There's no point in this where I'm like, I hate you, Reverend Moore. Like, the one character you're clearly supposed to hate is Chuck, uh, Ariel's Ariel's boyfriend, who is the pre-stated domestic abuser because he beats the shit out of her while when they break up. Yeah, and just general um, psychopath who plays chicken with a tractor and all that. Yeah, he's, he's very clearly, like, he's the son of the rich guy who's, like, on the city council and owns a farm and is the f- police fire chief, and he he's a piece of shit. Like, he's the only one you're really supposed to hate. You're not supposed to hate Reverend Moore. You're supposed to understand him but disagree with him, and John Lithgow does that so well. And Kevin Bacon, like, there's a lot about this movie where you're like, in another actor's hands, this would have been quite stupid. Some of the lines are kind of dumb. I'm not going to lie. But there are other ones. They're cool. There are lines that he delivers in just this... The way that he meets Willard is he's walking, and he's walking backwards because he's looking at Ariel as she's walking away. And as he's walking backwards, he knocks into Willard, and Willard's like yelling at him, like, you gotta watch where you're going. Like, and he's and it looks like he's about to start a fight. And Willard, it's a running thing throughout the entire movie. Willard has a bad habit of fighting. Willard fights a lot. Um, and he's like getting in, he's like getting in Ren's face, and Ren just looks at him and just goes, Hey, I like that hat, man. They sell uh, men's clothes where you got that. <laughs> and and this is a testament to Christopher Penn. In that moment, he just like he looks like he's about to punch him. And then he, it dawns on him. He's like, oh, this guy's kind of cool, actually. And he just smiles. And he's just like, what's your name? And they, like, introduce each other. And it's such a, like, line-wise, if, if you just look at that on a script, there are many ways to play that. And the way that the two of them play that is so subtly wonderful. It shows that Ren is witty, is much wittier than you would previously have him think. It shows everything about Willard's temper, but also that Willard's kind of a sweet guy and kind of gets it on a deeper level than anyone gives credit for. And it's so subtle, this performance. It's all done with faces and gestures. You know, Ren doesn't actually look up at Willard's eyes or face until he's delivering the quip and it's so perfectly done the acting in this movie is so superb and subtle and way better than just like cheesy 80s trash yeah 
I do need to mention, of course, the soundtrack to this movie. Uh, and I know we're getting close to like the 40 minute mark. No, we're but good. We're fine. It, it would be offensive for me to talk about Footloose without talking about the soundtrack. Absolutely. <laughs> which includes uh, a Bonnie Tyler song written by Jim Steinman. Which we stand both those folks. Straight up. Um, it obviously has Kenny Loggins being the fantastic Kenny Loggins doing I'm Free and the title track. Um, by the way, all the lyrics for all these songs were written by uh, Dean Pitchford, uh, the the screenwriter for the movie. Uh, it has Sammy Hagar doing The Girl Gets Around, which is a tremendously gross, disgusting song, but it's hella fun. Denise Williams is Let's Hear It For The Boy, which is still one of the most fun songs. Like, when I play, I play bass in that production of Footloose. The Let's Hear It For The Boy bass line is still one of my warm-ups when I'm playing <laughs> bass. Is just doing that. It's so enjoyable and so wonderful. Um, I know for a fact, Andy, uh, for a certain segment of your other podcast called Fiction, you use a drop from this soundtrack. And I use it with glee every time. <laughs> when y'all play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, you use the sax part from uh, Moving Pictures is Never, which is that titular wonderful warehouse scene where, you know, Kevin Bacon's just got to dance it out. And he just he pulls up and he's got like a bottle of malt liquor and a cigarette and he's just throws the liquor and he finishes the cigarette and tosses it and starts dancing and it's all through the warehouse and it's melodramatic and I'm pretty sure they did a Family Guy spoof on it or maybe a Simpsons spoof on it. I don't even remember. I mean, probably both. I mean, that's like, that's one of the iconic scenes of the movie and you, you, you mentioned how a lot of Kevin Bacon's lines would seem stupid with a lesser actor. Like that sequence would be ridiculous in in the hands of lesser artists. You know, Kevin Bacon and his four stunt doubles who uh, together they danced that warehouse scene. Oh, there were four. I I I was I was sitting there watching with Stephanie, and I just go obvious obvious cut obvious stunt double obvious stunt <laughs> double because because it, it is he yeah. does the he lands this like double spin move and like just ridiculous movements and back handsprings all over the place. And then you just see like back handspring and then you see Kevin Bacon land and you just go obvious. That's the most like, I'm not even the film guy. And I go, that's an obvious cut. I didn't realize it was four doubles. A stunt double, a dance double and two gymnastics doubles, but it works. The scene totally works. The scene's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. If you're not a film person, like if you're if you're someone who doesn't, you know, watch things for the technical side, it works just fine. And it's still a great scene even with those things. Yeah. I think of so, I, I you know, to to lead us gently towards a close, I, I do think of you know, there are so many eighties movies that fell flat or haven't aged well, even if they were, you know, completely iconic, like go ahead and watch the never ending story sometime. And when you're done crying over our tax, acknowledge how like it's aged pretty horribly, but footloose, I feel like 
has withstood the test of time and it's definitely stuck in the 80s it's definitely you know a time capsule back to the 80s but it it, it still is entirely enjoyable today 100 percent. like again i just rewatched this i grew up watching this movie i would watch this movie on reruns on vh1 like all of the time i probably like because because it's vh1 you know on the weekends they do their like the rock and roll movie thing, and it's just, it's like Footloose, Singles, um, the Temptations movie that I think was just made for TV. What, I, I, I don't even know. Oh, Rockstar, like, it was all these movies, but Footloose was the one that I would sit there and just be like, no, I, Footloose is on, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna watch Footloose, guys. <laughs> like, this, this movie is just, like, in my DNA. And I could, again, I I touched on, you know, some of the, I I could dive deep on the philosophical aspects of it, but honestly, y'all have enough of that from me on a regular basis. This is a movie that makes me happy. Playing bass in in my senior, the last show that I did in high school theater was playing bass for this show. And it was one of the, highlights of my teenage years was being in an orchestra pit and playing bass to this to this show never mind the fact that i sucked at playing bass never mind the fact that i our director needed to do like piano lead-ins for the bass line to uh i'm free because i could never get the timing right because i didn't really know how to read music i just could play bass and they were like you play bass and it's a lot easier to play than cats, I'll tell you that. Amen. Um, this movie has a very deep and abiding like spot in my heart. I when those Twitter lists come up that are like, give me five movies that tell me something about who you are, like inevitably, Footloose will be in that list. It is so instrumental for me, and I love it. And I wanted to share that with you, with you, Andrew, and with you, our beautiful audience. So that's my love for te- for uh, this episode is 1984's Footloose. Well, good on you, man. It makes it makes me happy to hear you talk about something that you clearly love so dearly. Um, you know, we talked yeah. about how it's surprising to me. We talked about how it's surprising to me that Footloose is one of your favorites. But you know, hearing you say that, hearing you say that, like, name five movies that describe me, and you say Footloose. I think myself and anybody else who knows you, including our listener base, goes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes complete sense. <laughs> uh, also, I think this is the first time on the show that we've talked about a movie specifically. I believe you're right. Yeah. We've talked directors. We've talked comedians who have done acting. Um, but I don't think we've ever done just a movie. So. No. A worthy. Uh, a first. W- yeah, a worthy offering for the first one. <laughs> Shall I slide it over to you, my friend? Yeah, you know, um, Reverend Shaw had a problem with dancing, and he had a problem with rock and roll music. Um, And if he had been subjected to what we're going to talk about next for my hate, uh, I don't think Kevin Bacon ever would have convinced him otherwise. Here on Love Hate Relationship, we talk about lovely things, and then we talk about things that aren't so lovely, things that we hate. And I'm here today to talk about why I hate mathcore. All right. Let's uh, 
<laughs> Let's get into it. Yeah. So, you know, I have a question for you, my friend. Um, you know, I, I I warned you about this, but off the cuff, I would like you to list as many musical subgenres as you can, and we'll keep it in rock and roll so that we're not here all day. Okay, no, and that's fair. Um, I. I was tempted when you said this to like pre-write a list, but I'm not going to be that person. I'm going to go completely off the dome. Um, so rock subgenres. I'm going to go with rock and roll, classic rhythm and blues, rockabilly, uh, alternative hard rock, uh, contemporary indie. Heavy metal with the subgenres of uh, doom metal, black metal, new wave of British heavy metal, glam metal, hair metal, power metal. I might have to come back to my new metal, electronic metal. We go back to rock music for a second. Uh, jazz fusion rock. Uh, God. So 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 right that now. was about fifteen in the span of like five seconds, and I think it, it, it's telling that you were able to go okay subgenre of rock heavy metal subgenre of heavy metal. Da, 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 da. I even forgot about all the punk rock subgenres, which is true. funny because you know uh, like oh god, I mean there's punk rock, there's pop punk, there's power punk. There's hardcore, there's ska, there's, oh God, there's noise core. <laughs> so, so let's, let's cap it. I think that's about 20 right there. And, and that's, that's about what I was expecting, you know, especially coming from you, the more musically inclined, uh, uh, just a quick preface. I am historically several steps behind the curve when it comes to musical trends. And I tend to like what I like and just stick to it. I can attest. Yeah. I uh, I spent most of my high school listening to Queen and David Bowie and Kiss and all of these groups that got started before I was even born. I didn't know what My Chemical Romance was until high school. I didn't start listening to them until college. And, you know, even today, I'm perfectly content to put on, like, the first three MCR albums and just call it a day. The most modern band I listen to is probably Pup. Um, which is, you know, a punk band I've lightly sung the praises of. And even then, they got started in 2013. And I, I discovered them, like, six months ago. So I'm not what you'd call a cutting-edge music aficionado, but I don't get mathcore. So for anybody who is unfamiliar as to what we're talking about, I'm going to quote the definition from Wikipedia. Mathcore, or experimental metalcore, is a genre of music often seen as a subgenre of metalcore that developed during the 1990s and is influenced by post-hardcore and math rock. Bands in the genre emphasize complex and fluctuant rhythms through the use of irregular time signatures, polymeters, syncopations, and tempo changes. Early mathcore lyrics were addressed from a realistic word worldview with a pessimistic, defiant, resentful, and sarcastic point of view. The genre has also been classified as noisecore and chaotic hardcore. And I dare say noisecore and chaotic hardcore probably both sell the concept better than just mathcore. I, I was telling Mariah earlier that you know yes guess what my hate's gonna be is is math core and she got very upset and offended and it led to a discussion where i need to make a distinction there's math core 
and there's Math Rock. They both do the same things, playing with time signatures and being musically different. But one of them has Screamo and the other doesn't. And I'm here to talk against the Screamo today. So I'm fascinated because I had never, I feel like I'd heard the word mathcore on like, here's a list of random ass musical subgenres that I've come across, but I've never actually listened to any of it. And I did listen to some in anticipation of this episode, but I am intrigued to get into it because this is so different for me. And I am intrigued that it's specifically the vocals that seem to make such a big difference for you. So please continue. Yeah, because I mean, it really, I, for, for me, music, like, I like the vocals. I like the singing. I probably pay more attention to that part of any music than I do the instruments. Um, I love lyricism. I, I, I love tonality and like with math core, the, the big defining thing is the, the bizarre time signatures or the constantly changing time signatures and, you know, doing doing all this crazy noise stuff, and I, I I can I can almost get behind that. It's not what I'd listen to on a Saturday afternoon, but it doesn't like bother me until you introduce the lyrics. And just to finish up the history lesson, like like early ancestors of the genre for anyone familiar include bands like Black Flag and King Crimson which are, you know, groups known for their anti-establishment and prog rock vibes, respectively. And, you know, those are those are older bands, for sure. Especially, like, King Crimson was, like, early 80s. And, like, the most famous mathcore groups operating, or at least that operating today, or at least it started the genre, include groups like the Dillinger Escape Plan, the Armed, CU Space Cowboy, and the Number 12 Looks Like You. The Number 12 Looks Like You is the band that Mariah, like, unwillingly introduced me to the genre with when she would play it in the car and not let me change it. And now I just sit in silence. I'm sorry, I just love the idea of Mariah being this little, like, musical dictator inside of your car. It, like, brings me joy. Oh, it's, I love it. it's going strong to this day. So. <laughs> oh, God. And, like, you know, for the first time, I'm almost unwilling to put in drops. Like, like I'm, I'm for, for our listener base, if you want to go ahead and explore the genre on your own, maybe you'll find out you like it. And, and you know what? That's perfectly fine if you do, but like for the, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, like it is the most throat shreddingly untonalic. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use it like atonal atonal the okay there you atonal. go uh, the most atonal lyrics of just somebody screaming full bore into a microphone and i hate that 
you know, it's been a while since I've put on my Abe Simpson hat and shaked my fist at a cloud, but like I'm sitting here fully in the, this is just noise camp. And I never thought I would find a genre of music that like put me in that old fuddy duddy sense, but man, does math core just not come across as music to me. It's schizophrenic instrument sounds accompanied by just horrific, brutal screamo lyrics. And like, I, I want to give you an opportunity to defend the genre from a musical standpoint, because it's something you had expressed interest in, even though you were unfamiliar. So I, I think this is as good a place as any to try and break that down. Sure. Uh, so to give some context, listeners, when Andy first suggested this, um, we were just texting, honestly. This wasn't formal notes or anything. But I asked him, like, what exactly, like, what is metalcore? Can you give me an idea of it? And he gave me kind of a more cursory explanation than what he just read off to all of you. And in my head, I'm like, okay, so this just sounds like really musically complex hardcore or metal. Um, okay, uh, it sounds... Sounds okay by me. Um, I'm a jazz fan, so musical complexity is something that I am regularly very, very invested in. And that's and that's kind of what I wanted to express here is like I'm a defender of musical complexity. I think that if musical complexity isn't for I'm also a defender of pop music. Don't get me wrong. I like simple music as much as the next guy. I learned to play guitar listening to ACDC. But I... So approaching this, I was like, okay, let me... I do want to defend the idea of that complexity. When I actually sat down and listened to some math core, uh, and specifically, I can tell you, I listened to a Spotify playlist uh, titled The Sounds of Math Core. Or, I'm sorry, The Sound of Math Core. Uh, I'll link it here in the show notes so you can listen to the exact same thing that I listened to. Andy, I'm assuming you haven't listened to this playlist since you're not a fan. I found it fine, kind of boring, to be honest. No, and, and, and I have my reasons there. When I listened to it, I, speaking as someone who is a fan of metal and hardcore, and who is also a fan of jazz, um, who is a huge Tool fan, I, 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 hear, I hear percussion that's changing time signatures over and over. I'm hearing like, okay, this sounds like 5-4, this sounds like 7-8, um, we got a little bit of 4-4 four, four here, and now we're going back into the 5-4. Um, and I'm by, by no means an expert. I have no training beyond what I've studied myself. But I, this is kind of the thing that I'm figuring out. I'm going, okay, this is kind of cool, I guess. Jazz people, were jazz drummers were doing this, you know, 35 years ago. Like, there's nothing new or particularly interesting there. The guitar lines, the guitar riffs basically sound like, you know, late 90s, early 2000s new metal. Um, just in weird time signatures, and yes, screamo vocals, which, to be honest, I don't mind, I don't love, like, I, you and I both grew, both were coming up musically during the time when, like, the emo music was peaking, Yeah, and you would, you, and you would get something like, you wouldn't get the screamo version of, uh, the red jumpsuit apparatuses, uh, face down. But you might get the version where the bridge is screamed. Does, that, is this ringing a bell for you? Oh, no, yeah, or is absolutely. This one of those things that you just didn't hear. Okay, yeah. So, because there were two versions of that song, um, 
there is a version where like on the radio they wouldn't play the screamy the screamy bridge sure. they'd play the sung bridge but i watched like I watched them perform that song um, on some TV show or talk show, and they did the screaming version. The version that I own uh, on, like, some mix from Forever Ago has the screaming. And I know there's a version of it where the whole song is screamed like that. They were a band with roots in there, in that genre. And I always kind of went, I like the kind with the bridge <laughs> where they scream. Sure. You Like, I don't, Yeah. You're, you're, you're making me consider something that honestly I hadn't until this point. Cause you know, I, I am, I have no problem with the musical complexity and, you know, I can think of several different instances where there are bands that I like that, you know, do more experimental, more offbeat math core stuff. You know, dream theater has elements of math core coheed and Cambria. Oh, yeah. We've talked about how much I love counter beats in coheed songs on the drums you know, Dance Gavin Dance will change the time signature on the fly. And so thinking about that and then thinking about Screamo, Dance Gavin Dance has Screamo too. That's just, it's not all Screamo. And, you know, I, I, I grew up listening to like uh, Queen and Bowie and stuff, but I was also a massive Disturbed fan. <laughs> And, you know, think about uh, Bullet for My Valentine. So I'm sitting here realizing there's a place in my heart for Screamo. And there's a place in my heart for musical, musical complexity. You know, sometimes if we're having trouble falling asleep, Mariah will put on jazz and it's absolutely wonderful. There's just, I don't, there's something about the two of them married together that I lose all appeal and interest in the musical process at that point. And so, you know, that's why I sit here and say that I really think it's, it's the lyrics and not even the lyrics. It's just the vocal style, you know, going through yeah. the list, Dillinger escape plan, the armed number 12 looks like you, all of those I've listened to songs and it's basically nothing but just scream, shred throat, rawr into the microphone. Um, sure. The only instance I found that isn't so much like that is a song by the band See You Space Cowboy, which was actually being sung. And then it was like, okay, I can I can get into this. It is entirely possible the well was poisoned for me um, way back when, when Mariah played the number 12 looks like you specifically like her favorite songs are these two songs. One of them is called Grandfather, which is actually a little bit lighter for the genre and especially um like the song that i hate the song that i will forever associate mathcore with is called el pinata de la muerte and the lyrics for el pinata de la muerte i will find creative ways to strip your body parts and use them as weapons of torture my mother will be proud maybe you can appreciate this saw created with your nails used to cut off your lips and stuff them into your nostrils empty my bladder into your dirty mouth so that but 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 screamed so that you don't even actually understand what you're being sold that was my introduction to the genre and it's not impossible that i just heard that and wasn't ready for that and have never been ready for that. Um, but 
even sitting here objectively breaking that down and saying there's you know there's a place for this musically there's maybe even a place for it vocally it's just not my vibe and it's never gonna be my vibe can i make a counterpoint sure when i finished listening to this playlist and i didn't listen to the whole thing when i was when i had gotten a sufficient amount i was probably 45 minutes to an hour into it i switched over and i listened to some cannibal corpse are you familiar with Cannibal Corpse, Andy? Uh, you know what? I don't think I've ever actually listened to them, but I do know the band, yes. Okay, yeah. Cannibal Corpse are famous because they were, like, one of the first big mainstream, like, I, I hesitate to even say mainstream, but, like, death metal bands, where, like, they they had their albums banned in certain places because the artwork was too grotesque. Um, anyone... now. And, and also, if you read their lyrics, like, I'm going to, while you were talking, uh, I went ahead and just pulled up the lyrics to uh, Cannibal Corpse's Necropedophile, uh, which is a song that I listened to um, plenty. Like, I think it's, I, I always enjoyed it, uh, but I never understood the lyrics to it because they're all those, like, Cookie Monster lyrics. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um Anyone here who has a uh, content warning for uh, sexual abuse, uh, necrophilia, and pedophilia, skip ahead to this point. You're going to want to skip ahead about 30 seconds, so just hit that skip button twice. First uh, verse. I was once a man before I transformed into this molester. Freshly deceased children you have born, torn by my rape. The dead are not safe. The lifeless child corpse I will violate. Yeah, I don't like that's Cannibal Corpse. I don't like that either. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, not, and I'm not trying to suggest you listen to Cannibal Corpse. I honestly, like, I, there was a phase in my life where I listened to a bunch of Cannibal Corpse. Again, never really understanding the lyrics that well. Uh, I moved on to other more, what I considered more interesting music. Uh, but I put on some Cannibal Corpse after I was done with this because I kind of went... I don't really understand the lyrics that I'm listening to on this. And it reminds me of how I never really understood the lyrics on Cannibal Corpse. So I pulled up some Cannibal Corpse and I was like, how alike are these two things? And honestly, pretty alike. Yeah. The map chord just has weird time signatures and is slightly more melodic. Um, some of the bands that I listened to also went into like using other more interesting instruments They'd have piano breaks sometimes in the middle of a song with a lot of heavy, almost corn-style riffing. I don't know. I, I don't think it was musically invalid. It's probably not a playlist I'm going to listen to again. It's probably not a genre I'm going to spend a lot of time plumbing the depths of. Just like I kind of eventually moved on from Cannibal Corpse. But, uh, you know, I don't like to talk you out of your hates, but... I, I look at this and I just kind of go, all right, this one's not for me. It sounds like this one's just kind of not for you. Yeah, I don't like reggaeton. I don't know if I've ever talked about this. I don't really like reggaeton, which, you know, you went to high school with me. Um, we're talking about this era. That was a very big music for a while. Sure. That repetitive drum beat, that reggaeton drum beat, um, that, that clave that they would have in there, like, I liked it at first. But when it was put into an entire genre of music, when it became the backbeat for an entire genre of music, it got very boring for me very quickly. Yeah. 
And the lyrics did not terribly interest me because they were doing, they had nothing interesting to say to me. They were all based, it was all essentially just like party jam music without any particularly interesting imagery or going in any interesting places with those themes. So I was like, I don't really care for this music. That said, I recognize that the people who were also telling me that they hated this music were either my old-as-hell parents, which, fair, or shitty racist people who thought that it was, you know, trashy garbage jungle music for sexually deviant Latinos, which, you know, fuck them. So I just kind of treated it as a, all right, this one's not for me. I'll listen to Elvis Crespo before I listen to Daddy Yankee. That's going to be who I am, and that's okay. Can you live in a world where this exists, Andy, and it's just not for you? <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely can. Um, I, oh. think you're, I think you're quite right. This isn't for me, but like, this is as not for me as anything I've ever heard is, which was why I think I decided to make it my hate in the first place. No, and I appreciate that. And I like that you're willing to take take this personal affront of this music existing uh, and bring it to the table. I, I think as long as you're willing to admit that it's, you know, not for you, but it might be for some people. Clearly Mariah likes it. And frankly, um, I love you, my friend, but <laughs> I find Mariah's taste more interesting than yours a lot of the time. Very fair. Uh, Incredibly fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because she just listens to more and more varied shit. Uh, whereas you yourself have admitted that, you know, the most contemporary band you listen to is Pup, which we listened to some Pup after you recommended them. And I was like, cool, this is fun. I like this. And then I listened to 19 other things that same day. <laughs> so, and, and that's got to be okay. Like, it really is. I tried to play... When Tool came up on streaming recently... Right. Um, I tried to play, I tried to play some tool in the house and, you know, Stephanie was interested based on my descriptions. She was like, Ooh, this is that cool band where they're like, they're a hard rock band, but like they do weird time signature things and they're just really musically interesting. And I'm like, yeah, they're great. And I put on undertow and we got three or four songs in and she was like, I don't, I don't, I don't like this. This is just angry. And not enjoyable and not something I want to listen to on my Sunday evening. And I went, fair enough. Okay. Tool's not for you. That's fine. <laughs> Reggaeton's not for me and math core isn't for Andy. And it's all okay. <laughs> it is. You ready to move on? Yeah. So speaking of things that may or may not be okay, um, let's go into the relationship segment of the show. You know, every week we, or not every week, every episode, we take one of your relationship questions. And, you know, recently we've been enamored with a Twitter account called relationships.txt because it's been sort of a wealth of things we can speak upon. (laughs) So um, this week, this episode um, we're, we're, taken it from Twitter from relationships.txt and here's the situation. My fiance doesn't want my ex coming to our wedding. 
One of my best friends is a gay male who was actually my neighbor in high school. We dated for nine months at ages 16, 17, but since then he's only dated men. He wasn't out of the closet in high school. We have remained close friends into adulthood. I don't take the fact that he was my ex seriously because it's been friendship for 95% of the time we've known each other. There are zero feelings on either end, and we both have had major relationships since then, including the one I'm in right now, where I'm getting married next year. My fiancé doesn't want to hang out with my ex or invite him to the wedding. He says the fact that we've slept together really bothers him, and I wouldn't like it if he invited an ex. I don't know what to do. I can't imagine my ex at my wedding. My fiancé is willing to go along because it's important to me, but hates the idea that I don't want to do that. By the way, this is the first time I've ever seen my fiancé jealous. Help! So, let's help. So, uh, first of all, we need to give uh, this individual a name. Uh, Andy, any notable fiancés or brides come to mind? Mrs. Robinson. really decide how just in our own brain holes I wanted to get and whether or not to suggest Mrs. Robinson or figure out who they do in the Simpsons episode where Abe Simpson like does the whole graduate it, it might still be Mrs. Robinson Anyway, uh, that is the most significant fiance I can think of. Okay, I was thinking the bride from Kill Bill, but... Oh, uh... huh. In the interest of not hoping that these people's relationship ends in murder, (laughs) I'm going to go with Mrs. Robinson. Okay, that'll work. Mrs. Robinson it is. Whew, okay. Trying to remember the last time I saw was the last time I saw the graduate probably like twelve years ago. <laughs> okay, um, so Mrs. Robinson, shall I start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, uh, and I should preface to everyone out there: um, this actual question does specify that the uh, fiance writing in uh, is a thirty-one-year-old uh, female. Her the person she is marrying is a 38-year-old male, and the ex in question is a 30-year-old male. So, um, the first thing that I'm kind of zeroing in on, uh, and honestly, this is a practical matter more than it is anything else. You say up front, Mrs. Robinson, that your fiancé is willing to go along with your ex being at the wedding. Uh, because it is important to you, and he hates the idea, and you don't want to do that. I'm inclined to say that, um, in the short term, at least, for the short term for your wedding that's coming up, um, and we don't know how long it is until your wedding, but for that short-term period, at the very least, it sounds like your fiancé, I will give him this much credit. Probably not going to give him a lot of credit beyond this, but I'll give him enough credit that it sounds like he's willing to compromise to make you happy. That is not a bad... There's... Uh, what, what was that Vince Vaughn, Jennifer Aniston movie? The Breakup? It was The Breakup, was that it? yes. The Breakup. Great movie. I actually highly recommend that movie. It's very subtle and wonderful. But there's, um, there's a scene that gets talked about 
uh, a lot among a lot of couples, and I've used it. Uh, it's the scene where they're arguing about their relationship and like how things are with their living situation. And I, I think it's Vince Vaughn's character says something like, if you want me to do the dishes, just ask and I'll do the dishes. And Jennifer Aniston's character says... I want you to want to do the dishes. And he replies, why would I want to do the dishes? And you can really read that validly from multiple angles. You can read it from the, my partner should be able to communicate their desires to me. And my responsibility is being open to that. There's also the interpretation of, I do this much emotional labor in this relationship. And my partner should be able to recognize that and and jump in without my asking and both are valid and problematic to a certain degree but at the end of it at the end of the whole thing the thing that makes that relation a relationship in that situation and that is a very normal situation the thing that will make that relationship work is some degree of compromise it's you don't want to do the dishes but you fucking do the dishes you be willing to do it, and you find some way to meet in the middle on this subject. Your fiancé is already meeting you in the middle. And you say that you can't imagine your ex being at the wedding, but you don't want to make your fiancé do something that he hates the idea of. I'm sure Andy, and if he doesn't, I will, will touch on the idea of how problematic his feelings of ownership over your body in this situation it's kind of weird actually considering that this was over 17 years ago that y'all were together um we'll talk about that but your fiance is willing to do this compromise already i don't think it's wrong to take on face value that he cares enough about you to set his feelings aside and compromise with you and not make an issue of your ex being there at the wedding and I think that you are not wrong to take him up on that or to doubt it or to be like, I don't want to do it because he's going to hate it. Like, don't worry about his interior life on this one if he's willing to compromise with you on this. He's actually kind of doing, practically speaking, the best thing he can. Yeah. Andy? And so I want to I want to touch on, like, I myself very much understand the mindset of... My partner makes it clear they are uncomfortable with something, but they're going to set it aside for me. But because they've made it clear that they don't like it, now I don't want to do it. Or at least I'm I'm very bothered by the fact that they don't like it, even if it was something I wanted. Like I I feel like both myself and, you know, my partner in our own ways have been on either side of that coin. So I, I, I get where Mrs. Robinson is coming from. Um, but it is, there, there, there are a number of things that are very strange about the fiance in this situation, having such an issue in the first place, or at least the way they're, they're going about it. You know, you, they bring up the fact that this was this was 17 years ago. You know, this was this was a te- half their life yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, this was half their lifetime ago that you know, they got involved with this person and their best friends 
there's no way that fiance and ex don't know each other, haven't interacted with each other in, you know, close quarters. We've, we've had other uh, relationship problems kind of like this where, you know, mixing of friendships and romantic uh, relationships and strife that comes with that. But like, I wonder how did the fiance first react when Mrs. Robinson explained that she slept with this, with her ex, you know, was, was it a sticky situation? Then they say that this is the first time they've seen my fiance jealous. If you didn't get jealous finding out that you slept with this person, then it doesn't make sense to me why he's getting jealous at the idea of that person being at their wedding. And that's even putting aside, like, if they were jealous because you slept with this person, that would be an insane red flag on its own. So I'm not I'm not saying, like, oh, they should feel that way. It's just, since they don't feel that way, I'm confused as to why it's such a strong thing in the first place for the ex to be at the wedding. She does say my fiancé doesn't want to hang out with my ex or invite him to the wedding. Oh, that's a good point. I think maybe this situation is the first time she's seen her fiance jealous. Sure, sure. Okay, yeah, that, but... that answers, that addresses part of what I was just saying then. I mean, on the one hand, I think you're you're right. You know, it, it the fiance deserves credit for saying, I don't like it, but I understand he's your best friend and... Like, don't expect me to have a cigar with him or anything, but he can come to the wedding. But, like, for me, the the bigger issue almost is the fact that he had to voice his discomfort. Or to look at it from the other angle, the fact that his him voicing his discomfort is a huge issue for Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, I just... What do you think of his thing about just being uncomfortable that they have slept together in the past yeah that kind of comes out of nowhere i just like the he she writes in the question he says that the fact that we've slept together really bothers him and i wouldn't like it if he invited an ex now that phrasing is confusing because it doesn't say if it doesn't english major time uh (laughs) If we're going off of an antecedent, it sounds like he has said that she wouldn't like it if he invited an ex. But it could also be that Mrs. Robinson is writing that she would not like it, like she's admitting that herself. Sure. Either way, either way, I don't know, man. I I am really, really uncomfortable at the notion of anyone in a relationship who refuses to let their partner have a past and is like bothered by their past. Like if you are with someone and you can't get over the fact that before they met you, when they were a fucking teenager, they did stuff. I, I don't know. That infuriates. Sure. I, I just, I just, I, Mrs. Robinson, your fiance sounds like a very insecure man. And maybe it's okay that he has discomforts. 
It's not okay if he has discomforts and he does nothing about them. And is and he thinks that this is a valid stance. May, am I wrong, Andy? Like, am I being, like, overly ungenerous to this guy? Like... Um, I mean, I don't think so. It definitely, like, there the ownership is never okay in a relationship. Unless um, it is a pre-approved thing that both you and your partner have talked about where there is a a dom sub dynamic like like that's about the only instance where somebody proclaiming ownership over their partner is acceptable and and even then you have safe words exactly yeah and and you know any relationship that's healthily doing that anyway you can bet that the the dom the owner the master is absolutely in tune with his partner enough to know what is and is not okay. That doesn't sound like the dynamic here. It sounds like you're about to be my wife and that means we own each other in a weird way. And yeah, I mean, there's this, there's a sexual jealousy component. There's maybe a homophobic component. Maybe some of the discomfort is, this gay person i mean you don't say he took your virginity i guess it's unfair of me to even hypothetical assume that but the 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 idea that this gay person had sex with my wife before i did like or just this person yeah yeah absolutely no no i mean in general yes but i mean specifically maybe that's what's making this guy uncomfortable in a in a homophobic way i think honestly this needs to be talked through and resolved before a wedding happens right now he's saying yeah whatever i don't like it but he can come to the wedding and like that speaks to a crack deep down that would make me be enough to be like okay this has to get patched before we even go back to talking about a wedding period. You know, this is the first, she says this is the first time that she's ever seen him jealous. I know that engagements can stress people out in really weird ways and, and people get emotional in ways that maybe they weren't, but you know, I I didn't specify the ages. You made a, a good point of clarifying. They do. Everybody specifies their ages here. This is a 38 year old man who is saying this and uh, there's there's an immaturity there to me like or an old schoolness maybe yeah maybe one in the same like this yeah this sounds like a plot from like this sounds like this dude would be played by like a michael douglas lookalike in the late 90s like it's there's there's this old schoolness to it and and to me, the dumbest excuse for shitty, toxically masculine behavior is, oh, that's just how I was raised, or that's just how I, uh, that, that's just how it was in my day. Like, anybody who tells you that should not be taken seriously. I don't care if they're your parents, I don't care if they're your grandparents, I don't care if they're the asshole in front of you at the line to Publix. Like, that's a bullshit excuse. Yeah. And you don't say that's where he's coming from here. 
But the fact that he's 38 and acting like this and talking like this, it sounds like that. And it's unacceptable. Like, I'm not telling you you should th- you should put off your wedding. Like, I, Andy says you might. Like, okay. I, I'm not going to say nay on that. I don't think it, it's worth postponing the wedding necessarily because I don't know anything else about your relationship. This is literally the only window I have into it. But y'all need this addressed because it's not going to go away with the wedding. Right. Like, if he's got an issue, I don't know, something about the presence of exes. When, when exes are present and you begin your relationship with the understanding, I am dating a person who is friends with people who he or she or they have been in some way intimate with. Like, there are people who say, I don't stay friends with exes. If I hook up with somebody, I, I don't maintain contact after, after it's clear that this isn't going to be a relationship anymore. If you're one of those per- people deep down in your heart, you can find people to date and marry who have that as well. But you knew going in that this was someone who is close to an ex from high school. And you're still on your bullshit about this. And frankly, Mrs. Robinson, your fiancé needs fucking therapy. But I think you know that. So (laughs) I I worry that I sound like the young man yelling at a cloud right here. Like, like, there's plenty. Work on yourself. Work on yourself, you toxically masculine 38-year-old fuck twit. I mean, I think there's plenty of clouds for us to yell at and like, there's no reason not to yell at them. I mean, I don't know. I, I agree with you. And I mean, like my advice for Mrs. Robinson would be, I'm not saying put off the wedding, but I'm saying have a conversation with your fiance about this. And if you can't get down to the real issue or settle it, then I think you need to take a hard look at whether or not to put off the wedding because like maybe he just hasn't been showing this jealousy. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there, there's no just have your, have your best friend come to your wedding and be cool with the fact that your husband is clearly he's told you not okay with it. That is not a workable solution here. And Honestly, there's there's not a whole lot you can do. There's not a whole lot your best friend can do. There is some work that your fiance needs to do. And without that, this 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 gets some cracks in the foundation. At least I think it does. So, therapy for all, therapy's great. I I hope that Mrs. Robinson is able to talk to um, her fiance and at the very least get to the bottom of this. And maybe there's a different real problem that he's just projecting. And one way or another, it gets worked out. Not saying that I hope this happens, but Andy, wouldn't it be fantastic if the re- if the real reason why Mrs. Robinson's fiance doesn't want her best friend to come to the wedding is because the fiance is secretly in love with the best friend. 
I, that would certainly bring it into the level of 80s farce that we've been talking about all episode. Sounds like a B-plot in a John Waters movie. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, well, Mrs. Robinson, um, we hope for the best. We don't know if you'll ever see this. Uh, the last time we did a relationship TXT post, I did uh, put it in the replies of the original tweet. So... Hey, if you're monitoring that at all, uh, maybe listen to this weird, wacky little podcast. And if you're hearing this at all, it's because you clicked on that weird, wacky little podcast. (laughs) But best of luck to you. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if you clicked on this weird, wacky little podcast and you have a relationship question of your own, it doesn't have to be about, you know, the the prospective partner of your life. It can be, you know, about a friend or a coworker or an animal or anything that is a relationship uh you know we will be more than happy to help you work through your problem and talk through it in our perfectly unqualified way you can send those questions into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them there you go uh you can subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher spotify youtube or even tune in radio hey mom Uh, We would also absolutely love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those, and indeed all of those, because uh, it probably helps. I don't know. Our iTunes score seems to be going up, so let's keep at it. Um, And you can tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. Uh, You know, we talked about a movie today for the first time in our show. And we're going to talk about like eight movies. Yeah, yeah right. We uh, we're going to talk about more movies going forward. A lot of classics that we love. But if you like to hear about movies that aren't classics, I have another show called Cult Fiction that I do with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, where we watch shitty old movies and uh, talk about why they're maybe shitty or maybe good. Um, and you can find that at Cult Fiction Cast. And if you want to follow me personally, I'm Andy Bowell, and I am on Twitter at JovoCop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, y'all. And as always, please tell your enemies. (laughs) 